everyone. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, well, Happy New Year to those of you I haven't seen this year yet. I want to just extend a very special welcome to very dear and close friends of ours, Mark and Catherine Lilly, um, who are joining us this morning. Uh, Mark and Catherine pastor a church in Robertson called Robertson Reformed Community Church. And uh, they are here spending a little bit of time with their eldest daughter, uh, Tegan, who you will recognize, who has been fellowshipping with us for the last couple of months. And they have their other three children, Tyra, Timothy, and Troy, with them. And uh, we, we honor them, and we, we love you guys. It's so lovely to have you with us in Cape Town, and we pray for your work there in Robertson. Uh, these are soldiers in the kingdom, and in fact, Paul said in, in Philippians that for people who serve God in an extraordinary capacity, we are to treat them with, with honor when they're amongst us. So I want to encourage you to buy them a coffee afterwards and encourage them. I can't buy them coffee. I don't have enough money to buy coffee for that whole family. It's quite a big family. <laughs> we love you guys. Welcome. Um, so we're, we're working through Philippians, and uh, Nick, you're very close. I can't match the greeting you gave me via the interweb last week. Appreciate that shout out. Thank you. But good morning to you, Nick. <laughs> um, so we're in Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to have to just encroach on a couple of verses which Nick finished off with just to get the context right. So we're going to start around verse 10. So let's just read that whole passage together um, and then I will pray. He, so Paul is speaking about being found in Christ, not depending on his own righteousness. He says, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in, any, in, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. So the the central theme of Paul in Philippians chapter 3 is the resurrection of the body of believers. That great day of the resurrection. That's what he's dealing with. And how the knowledge of that day of the resurrection and our desire to be a part of it should affect the way we live today. There's a great old hymn that... Uh, got a bit of a, a catchy tune and I sometimes find myself singing it embarrassingly so that says oh when the saints go marching in I want to be in that number Amen. you know numbers an old like an old time word for like that song that dance I want to be there <clears throat> and that's what the point of these verses is he says I want to be in that number on that day when the saints are all raised from the dead And that should affect the way we live today. And Paul is describing how it affects how he lives in the present. Um, In in the previous verses, which Nick finished off with last week, uh, Paul was was saying uh, that his greatest desire was to know Christ and to be found in Christ, uh, to be associated with Christ, even if it means suffering for Christ, as he suffered much in his life, writing this very epistle from prison. He says he was willing to put up with it all by all, but put up with it all, but for what reason? He, he gives a reason, a rationale for why he's willing to endure everything. He says that by all means, by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He put up with all he did so that he would be there on that day. So what I want to do is I just want to stop for a second. If if this whole of chapter 3, the central theme of it is the resurrection of believers. And how that should affect how we live today. I want to just remind you for a second or two about what the Bible teaches. Just in basic terms about the resurrection of the just. Well, the, the scriptures tell us that Jesus was raised from the dead after dying on the cross for our sins... He suffered the punishment due for our sins. And then on the third day, God raised him from the dead. Now that resurrection was not some kind of metaphorical, you know, lesson about, you know, doing good and how doing good can endure, you know. That's one of the liberal explanations of the resurrection. No, it was a bodily resurrection. He was raised in the same body in which he died. He said to doubting Thomas... Put your finger here. Put your hand in my side where that spear went in. Do not doubt, but believe. He was raised in a physical body. But it was not a normal physical body. It was a strangely powerful and glorious body. It could do things that your body cannot do. He could, he could eat with this body. People could embrace him and hold him. He could walk. He, he, he entered through a door without opening the door. And then he shared a meal. He had some fish. 
with the disciples and then he disappeared again without opening the door and the strangest thing is the fish went with him. <laughs> this was a weird body. But it was a physical body. It was physical. And then the Bible also says that when the full number of God's elect have been born and brought into the kingdom and God's patience with the ungodly has finally been exhausted, the Bible says that this Jesus will return the same way that he went. You see, 40 days after he was raised from the dead, he was up in a mountain and while he was speaking with the disciples, his body began to rise. And it went up his physical body. It began to float. I don't know when last your body floated. But his body could float. And it, it went up and it went up and up and up and into the clouds and it disappeared. And then the disciples were looking at this and then some angels appeared and said, Well, why are you looking into the sky? This same Jesus who went up will come in like manner. He will come as he went. In other words, he will come in the clouds and he will come physically. He will come. He will come with the armies of heaven. At the sound of the last trumpet, He will come with great glory. The Bible says it will be like the lightning that flashes from the east to the west. And that final trumpet will sound and He will return in great glory and power. In a physical body, He will return. And in fact, the Bible says where Jesus is now in heaven at the right hand of God, He's still in His physical body. There is a physical reality to heaven now. Otherwise his physical body couldn't be there. This is a great mystery. We don't understand the complexity of how all this works. But there is a physical reality to heaven. Even now. And Jesus is there in a physical body. The dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven, one man said. So Jesus will return. And then at the time of his return, when that last trumpet sounds, the Bible says that there will be a great resurrection of the dead. Now depending on your eschatology, that's your, your theology of the end times, this is not a lecture on eschatology this morning, but some people believe that all the dead will be raised at the same time. The wicked and the righteous. Those who have put their faith in Christ and those who have rejected Christ. They will all be raised at the same time. That's if you're an amillennialist. If you're a premillennialist, you believe that there will be a separation. That at the return of Christ, only the, the, the dead in Christ will be raised on that day. And then after the millennium, the wicked will be raised for, for their condemnation. So, the one thing we can all agree upon, and the one thing we do all agree upon, that at the return of Christ, the dead in Christ will rise. Jesus will raise the bodies, no matter what has happened to those bodies, no matter how long they've been dead, no matter where they are, He will gather the atoms together again from the seas, from the ground, from the rivers, wherever those bodies have been scattered, they will be regathered and reconstituted, and the souls of the, of the saints who have died will be reunited with their bodies. Yes. So, what is the state of a true believer now who has died? 
Well, the best that we can make out is that the Christians who have died already, they are with the Lord in heaven in some kind of temporary condition. They're in a, they're in a disembodied state. They are spirits in the presence of God. But it's a temporary state that they're in. They are there with God in heaven awaiting the final resurrection. Now even on this there's some confusion. Uh, John Calvin, for example, believed that the saints who have died and are with the Lord in heaven now, they receive some kind of temporary body that they can live with in heaven. I mean, that's all conjecture. Um, All we can say is that This disembodied state or the state after death of Christians now, before the resurrection, is one of consciousness. We know that they are conscious, that they are with God. And it's it's a state of enduring personal identity. You know what I mean by that? In other words, you, you are still the person that you are. With your own feelings, your own thoughts, your own personality that God has given you. With your own memories, but obviously having been made perfect in heaven. Uh, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So it seems to be some kind of disembodied state. But at the day of the resurrection, when Christ returns, they will be reunited with their body. So what of us who are still alive at the return of Christ? Well, Paul says that we who are still alive, if we will be when Christ returns... We will be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. He says, our bodies which are frail and and fallen and susceptible to suffering and temptation and sin and weakness and loneliness and all these things, they they will be transformed in an instant and we will receive this glorious, eternal, physical body. As the saints are reunited with their bodies, as they come with Christ from heaven and together we will be caught up with him. So this was Paul's greatest motivating factor. The the thought of that great day. And his, his life on earth was dominated by the thought that this life is not all there is. And in fact, if, if, we, if we follow his, his thinking and his, his emphasis on the resurrection here, it's not just that this life is not all there is. It's that even the disembodied state of the souls made perfect in heaven now, even being in the presence of God as a, as a spirit, is not all there is. There's more. Okay, so let's read verse 12. He says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Paul here says, first of all, that he hasn't already attained to this resurrection. There's some doubt in the commentaries as to what Paul is talking about. He says, not that I have already attained. There's no object to that verb. What hasn't he attained? Well, there's differing views. And what Paul is probably talking about is is the whole thing. Lock, stock and barrel. He hasn't attained the perfection 
and the consummation of all things which will happen at that day of the resurrection. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, he says this, Some, having strayed concerning the truth, say that the resurrection is past, and they overthrow the faith of some. So there was this weird teaching going on at the time of Paul that somehow the resurrection had already happened. And you know what Paul says? You know what the Holy Spirit says to you? If you do not appreciate and grasp and look forward to and expect a final day of the resurrection of your physical body, your faith has been overthrown. So there's, there's, there's no resurrection yet. Not only that, he says there's no perfection yet. I'm not already perfected. No Christian perfection. There are some Christians running around saying that you can become perfect in this life. Well, all I can say is that if you think you can become perfect and sinless in this life, then you think you're better than the greatest apostle who ever lived. The man who birthed the entire church after Jesus had gone. The apostle Paul. And all the progress that he had made in his sanctification. And all that he had suffered for Christ. He says, I haven't already become perfected. There is no Christian perfection in this life. You will struggle with sin and selfishness for the rest of your life. But I press on, he says. Paul says that it's only on that day, after death and after our own resurrection, on that final day when Jesus returns, that we will finally on that day lay hold of that for which we have been created. You know that it's only on the day of the resurrection that the immeasurably powerful and immeasurably complex yearnings of the human heart for satisfaction for final peace, for a consummation of of something. The human heart yearns and desires satisfaction, a consummation of, of something. Something is always missing from the human heart, from the human condition. We constantly thirst for more of something and we often can't even put our finger on it. That's why you desire pleasure. That's why you constantly desire affirmation and love and adrenaline and excitement and pleasure. That's why you seek these things. There's something in you that is not satisfied. And the Bible says that that will only be satisfied finally and completely on the day of the resurrection. You cannot attain it in this life. When we are finally in a physical realm, made one with Christ and living with Him, then we will be satisfied. Not even those Christians who have died, who are now in the presence of God, spirits of just men made perfect, the book of Hebrews says. Not even those spirits in heaven are satisfied yet. Yes, they've they've been made perfect, but they haven't received their resurrected body. I want you to know this this morning. One of the points I want to make in as strong terms as I can. You were created for a purpose. For an eternal purpose. And the reason God created you, the purpose for which you have been created, is for physical existence. 
walking with God in the cool of a day in a garden. That's what your heart yearns for. Until the day of the final resurrection, the, the voice of the martyrs in heaven still cry out, How long, O Lord? There is still a godly dissatisfaction in heaven. But on that final day when Christ returns and the dead are raised, every desire of the human heart will finally be fulfilled in the Christian. For then we will finally lay hold, as Paul says, that for which Christ has laid hold of us. And it's, it's to this that Paul strives that day to be there on that day. He presses on, he strives with every ounce of power and self-will and determination all by the grace of God. He strives to be there on that day. And imperfectly so. He stumbles, he sins, he falls all the time, but he presses on towards it. There is nothing in this life that will ever truly satisfy you. Nothing. There is nothing. No pleasure, no, no exploits, no adventure, no trip, no holiday, no clothing, no... New age system, no meditation, no nothing will ever satisfy you. And this may shock you, although I've kind of already said this. Not even your relationship with Jesus as a Christian in this life will truly and fully satisfy you. It won't. It's not meant to. Paul goes on to say later in this text that this is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven and we must not expect to feel at home here. There will always be a dissatisfaction in the heart of a Christian. Because this is not what Christ laid hold of you for. There's more than this. A great day of resurrection power. And an eternal existence with God. In a body that never grows old. Never is tired. Never feels pain or loneliness or sadness or regret. You were built to live in a physical universe, in a physical body, with a physical Jesus Amen. for all eternity. Amen. Paul says that even if we know Jesus in this life, even as we pursue Jesus, that we will not know perfection. I have not attained. I, I don't count myself already to have been perfected. There's no perfection in this life. You're going to sin for the rest of your life. Accept it, but don't accept it. That's the message. And there's no satisfaction in this life. You know, many people expect too much from the Christian life. And that's why their faith stumbles. Because when all their needs aren't met, and all the pleasure doesn't come to them, and they don't become wealthy and healthy, and, and, and troubles don't disappear... They get bitter with God. They get bitter with preachers. Because we promise too much. Paul says, I don't count it that I've already attained this thing which I have been laid hold of by Christ for. I don't have it yet. 
You know, the world we live in is fallen, and it is, the Bible says, under the sway of the devil. It'll one day be destroyed together with all its kingdoms. Our citizenship is in heaven. The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. What's the, the, the writer of the Hebrews? He's speaking about the same thing Paul is. He's speaking about a physical reality. You're going to live in a physical city called the New Jerusalem. In a physical place where the new heavens and the new earth have come together, you will live in a physical body. Life will be as it is here, but infinitely enhanced. This is what you've been saved for. And nothing less than that. You see, there is this Gnostic heresy. If you remember the, 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 the Gnostics, in the early times where the New Testament was being written, there, there was already a form of Gnosticism which then grew into a full-blown religious system in the sort of first and second centuries, which taught this, that everything physical is bad. The body is bad. Physical pleasure is bad. And everything spiritual is good. So the goal of life, according to a Gnostic worldview, is to escape the physical realm. There are some religions today that, that teach that. If that could be your car, may I encourage you to go and have a look? <laughs> Otherwise, just ignore it. I'm going to press on, as Paul encourages me to do. So, physical place in heaven. Um, the Holy Spirit wants us to know through this. I mean, the Holy Spirit penned this through Paul. He wants us to know what we have been saved for. And it's not just to have your soul go to heaven. It's not what you've been saved for. God likes bodies. I didn't say that. C.S. Lewis said that. God likes the physical universe. It was his idea in the first place, and he likes the physical aspect of man's being. And these are central to his eternal purposes. You see, you know what the problem is? Why we are tempted to Gnosticism, to think that somehow spiritual things are eternal and indestructible, but physical things are temporary. You know what makes us think that way? Because of sin. The Bible says that a, a, in the beginning, when man sinned in the garden, the whole of the physical universe was subject to futility at that point. And so now, because of sin in the world, and the ravaging effects of sin, even on creation itself, everything physical is running down. But that's not the, 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 the nature of physicality. That is the impact of sin. When sin has finally been eradicated from the universe and all things have been restored to their original condition, things physical will be as indestructible and as eternal as things spiritual. There's no dichotomy between these things. That is the Christian worldview. Okay, so, Paul then asks the question, so what? So let's read the next two verses from verse 13. 
He says, brothers, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul asks this question, so now what? If it's true, as I have said to you, says Paul, that there is no perfection in this life, if it is true that we will always sin and always be selfish and always rebel against the truth we know, however, even if we are maturing and growing in our maturity and becoming more and more like Christ, that it's always going to be far short of where He is. If that's true, if we're never going to achieve perfection in this life, and if it's also true that we will never achieve this kind of satisfaction that we want in this life. What are we to do? And his answer is simple. He just says it's one thing. If it is true that you can't be perfect and you can't be satisfied in this life, you must press on. He says, one thing I do, I press on towards this great gift that resurrection day for which Christ has laid hold of me. And I want to ask this morning, what does Paul mean by that? How can we press on towards this great day of the resurrection? What does it mean to press on? Sounds great, let's press on, but what does it mean? Because he does give us a little bit more detail here of what he means by that. And there are three things which I'm going to finish off with that he means by pressing on. Number one. To be able to press on towards the day of the resurrection, Church on Main, and those of you who are visiting this morning, you have to know Christ as your Savior. Unless you are in Christ, covered by Him, covered by His righteousness, so that God has been reconciled to you, so that God has once again made peace with you despite your sin. Despite everything you've done in your life. If you're not in Christ, you don't yet have a claim, any right to that day of the resurrection. In fact, the opposite is true. You will be raised together with the wicked on, on that day. And you will be condemned and judged for your sin and separated from God for all eternity. You must be in Christ. Now I want to stop for a second and I want to ask a pointed question to you this morning. Are you in Christ? Have you received Christ as your Savior? Has there been a moment in your life where you have been humbled by the gospel? Where you have received the forgiveness that God offers you in His Son Jesus who He put on a cross to suffer in your place? Have you accepted what Jesus did on the cross for you? Only you can tell. Be honest with yourself this morning. Have you received Christ as Savior? That's the first thing. And that's what Nick preached on partially last week. That Paul did not count his own righteousness as anything. He didn't want his own righteousness. He wanted to be found in Christ. And it's in Christ that we will play our part in that day of the resurrection. Second thing that it means to press on is he says, I forget those things that are behind me. 
And he uses the language of an athletic race, of, of, a, of a sprinter like, like Nick, a provincial what's it, a hurdle jumper. <laughs> he, he says he, he strives, he uses an athletic word there, of a, like an, of a sprinter who stretches forward for that tape. He says he doesn't look behind him. Nick will tell you when you sprint, you can't look behind you. They even tell sprinters, don't even look to the side to see who's close to you at the tape. You just look forwards. That's the analogy that Paul is using here. He says, I forget those things that are behind me. And in the context of chapter 3, Paul is clearly referring to three things that he forgets. Quickly, number one. He says he forgets those things behind him that he may be tempted to think would disqualify him from playing his part on that day of the resurrection. All of his sins, all of his failures, whether before he was a Christian persecuting the church, or whether after becoming a Christian, his stumblings, his selfishnesses, his speaking words that he knew he shouldn't speak, which we do all the time, and even his failures as an apostle. Churches that he planted, that disintegrated. People that he led to the Lord who turned their back on on Christ and went back into the world. All his failures, all the things he tried to do that failed and all of his sins. All of that stuff, Paul says, he doesn't remember it. It is irrelevant. When it comes to whether or not he will be included on the day of the resurrection. It's irrelevant. Now when he says, I don't remember them. When he says the word remember, I forget, he doesn't mean he doesn't actually remember them in his head. Of course he does, and he doesn't mean that he doesn't sometimes refer to them. In other letters, Paul sometimes refers to his past. What he means when he says, I forget those things behind me, is he says, when it comes to whether or not I will be included on the day of the resurrection, those things are completely irrelevant. Why? Why are his sins, even as a Christian, completely irrelevant? Because he is in Christ. That's the only thing that counts. He's in Christ. If you are in Christ this morning, the first thing, you, you have received Christ as your Savior. If you're in Christ, neither sin... No matter how guilty you feel about the way you've acted or treated your wife or treated your husband or spoken to your kids or been a friend or you've slipped in something that you always seem to slip into. No matter what you've done, your sin is completely irrelevant to whether you will have your part in the day of the resurrection. This is the good news of the gospel. That it doesn't depend on your righteousness. The only thing that counts is are you in Christ? None of your failures can rob you. You may have tried to do things. You may have started a business and failed. You may have gone into the ministry and feel like you failed. It's completely irrelevant. It has nothing to do with a a set of criteria that God will check you on. The only thing that counts are you in Christ. Don't live with regrets and heaviness of heart about your past. If you've sinned, confess it and move on. Press on, says Paul. The greatest day in all human history is still to come. Still to come. The best is yet to come. And you can have your part in it. Press on. There's a second thing he says he forgets. He forgets 
This is something he says in, in, in the sense of forgetting. It's completely irrelevant when it comes to whether he's going to have his part in that day or not. Second thing is this, his successes. Those things which he thinks may qualify him to be there on that day. All of his good works, all of his righteousness, every church he planted, every missionary journey he went on, every bit of suffering he, he, he was willing to go through for the gospel, all of the things that he could point to, that the devil would be tempted to raise his pride for all of his successes, they are completely irrelevant. He says, I forget them. Paul was not interested in coming to God with an offering of good works. And you mustn't be either. They are completely irrelevant, the good things you've done. Paul wasn't interested in that at all. He wanted to be found in Christ, having Christ's righteousness, and that's all that matters as far as that day is concerned. I'm not saying there are not levels of reward in heaven. There are. But that's not what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3. He's dealing with the general resurrection of the dead. And how we can have our part on that day. We must press on. Forget about those successes of yours. And then thirdly, he says he forgets those things which he has lost. Those things he gave up for the sake of Christ. He, he, he's given up power as a Pharisee. He gave up reputation and the respect of the people in Israel. He gave up wealth. He came from a wealthy family. He was a Roman citizen. He, he, he gave up comfort. He gave up freedom. He's writing from a prison. He gave up so much for the sake of the gospel. And yet he says he counts them as rubbish. The things he gave up, little trinkets playing in the sand, he gave them up for the sake of this great treasure. Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. I, I have seen Christians begin to look back and regret the things they gave up for the sake of following Christ. I've seen it. Middle-aged men having a midlife crisis, beginning to regret all of the fun times they used to have, all of the, the sexual exploits, all of the, the good times with their buddies. And they begin to look back and they make shipwreck of their faith and of their lives. I've seen it. I've seen preachers begin to look back and regret what they gave up to go into the ministry. I've heard preachers begin to say from the pulpit, you know, I was an accountant. I could have made a lot of money. When I hear a preacher speak like that, I want to slap him in the face and say, Don't be like Lot's wife. Don't look back. You turn to the pillar of salt, my brother. He forgets all of that and he presses on. Just compare what you're going to have. Just compare it. The only rational thing to do is to press on. Compare a few years of pleasure in a body that can only enjoy things to us. It has a stunted ability to enjoy. Yes, you, yes, your body has a stunted ability to enjoy. It's part of the fall. Compare a few years of that with billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years, and that won't even be the beginning. It's eternity of, of, of perfect existence in a body that can enjoy what it enjoys to an enhanced degree. 
and what we do enjoy will be even better. I mean, just it makes no sense to trade all that in for sin. It's complete foolishness. And yet people do it all the time. Press on. Church on, man. Strive. And then that's the third thing. So first you've got to be in Christ. Second, forget those things behind you. Thirdly, strive, persevere towards the goal of the prize. I must somehow bring this to an end. What does Paul mean by striving, persevering? Let me just put it to you this way. God requires you to persevere in the faith if you're going to be saved. Yes, he does. Paul teaches that. Jesus himself taught that. He said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide, if you stay in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. You're only truly my disciples if you run the full course. Many come for a little bit into the church. Looks like they're Christian. And then they leave. Never to come back again. They weren't his disciples indeed. Jesus said this, He who endures to the end, shall be saved. God requires you to persevere in the faith if you are going to make it to that day of the resurrection. So, if that's true, how can Paul, in other places in his writings, seem to say that he has absolute confidence that he is saved and that he will be there? He says, nothing shall separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He says, all those who are justified will be glorified in Romans chapter 8. How is it that he can say, That our salvation is 100% secure. We cannot lose it. And yet, in another breath, he says, we must press on and persevere if we're going to receive. Well, this is the old reformed doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now, note this. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is not the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. In other words, it's not saying that you're once saved, always saved. And it doesn't matter what you do after you've said some prayer. That's not the doctrine. The doctrine is the perseverance of the saints. In other words, here's the point. True saints will persevere in the faith. Why? Because God enables them to. It is a work of God's grace in you that continually brings you back. Even when you stumble and perhaps for long seasons drift. It can happen. God will bring his saints back. He will. And and you know what? In the book of Philippians is the place we see some of the clearest statements in this regard. You've already seen them in the time we've been preaching through this sermon. Paul says this. He He says, it is he who works in you. He says, it says, it is we who work out our own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, I have to work out my own salvation. But it is he who works in you. Both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He is empowering you from the inside out. Here's the point. Saints persevere. They do. Why? Because God works with their will, not against their will. He changes your heart. He gives you an ability and a desire to want to keep pressing on and you do. Why did... The, the great martyrs, Jan Hus, Ridley, Latimer, Cranmer, Polycarp, why did they all willingly go to the flames 
refusing to turn their back on Christ. Let me tell you why. Because they know Christ will deny those who permanently deny him. But they also believed that those bodies that were burning in that flame would one day be raised from the dead. You know that Thomas Cranmer, in the English Reformation, when he was burned at the stake, he, he actually had recanted the faith out of fear for martyrdom. He was terrified and he recanted. He signed a recantation of his faith and they put him back in his pulpit. He had to submit a transcript of his sermon to the authorities before he preached that Sunday morning to make sure he was still towing the line. And as he got into the pulpit, Thomas Cranmer felt so deeply convicted that he had turned his back on Christ that he deviated from his notes and he withdrew his recantation and he stepped out of the pulpit and he went to the, to, to the martyr's post where he was burned at the stake. And as he was burning, as he promised he would do when he was preaching a sermon, he reached the hand that had signed his recantation. He reached it into the fire with the words, this unworthy hand. And then as he died, he said these words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I don't care what you've done. It's not too late for you. If you're sitting here this morning, if you're hearing this, it's not too late. Set your sights on the resurrection day and press on towards it. You can read through the rest of the verses. Paul encourages us to press on together. He says, let us be like-minded in this thing. Let's walk together. So I need you to help me to press on. I do. I do. I need your support. I need your help. We need each other. That's why we must not give up the gathering of the saints. Don't isolate yourself from the church. We need each other. That's verses 15 and 16. And then verses 17 to 21, he contrasts two people. Those who press on and those who turn back and seek pleasure in this life. And he shows how foolishness the one who seeks pleasure is. In conclusion... There needs to be a humble determination in the life of a Christian. That's what Paul's been talking about. That even though we do believe that we cannot be separated from the love of God, no one shall pluck us out of his hand. We cannot lose our salvation. Yet at the same time, we say with Paul, I don't say that I have already attained or am perfect. But one thing I do, I press on so that I may lay hold of it. It's got to be that humble determination in the heart of a Christian. And my exhortation to you this morning, Church on Main, 2016, for the rest of your life, press on. It's worth it. Should we pray?